to be some common sense. Yes, sir, they have the car stopped at 10 and branch microbiome. We still don't know who pulled the trigger. everyone and welcome to police off the cuff real crime stories i'm your host retired nypd sergeant bill cannon retired out of manhattan north homicide squad and with me today is straight out of brooklyn retired nypd detective phil grimaldi how you doing tonight phil i'm doing pretty good billy how you doing good i understand there's some real nasty weather in the northeast and we're supposed don't to don't getting- rub it in don't no no in. I, I you know i i didn't put out a video today from the beach because I, I i understand people are starting to get pissed off at me so i was like i'm not gonna rub it in i'm just gonna you know ask people how they're doing and uh you know my wife and the, and my two sons are supposed to come here on the 24th so i'm hoping the weather is good enough on that day that they're able to fly out of westchester and join me here. So uh, it's nasty as shit here in the northeast, northeast, and it's getting worse. But not to rub it in. Well, I I, I don't mean to, but uh, I I do my morning good morning with my coffee, and in the background is the palm trees, and people are getting used to the palm trees, but maybe a little annoyed at the palm trees. I think they're praying that I get hit in the head with a coconut or something. You know, it's called jealousy, Bill. It's <laughs> called jealousy. <laughs> Shut me up. So, folks, we're going to talk about this case, and the theme of this case is um, investigative disappointments that have happened in this case. Just when we think they're on the road to something really big, that there's evidence that's going to be that smoking gun piece of evidence I always refer to, it seems to come up as nothing. And that's the nature of homicide investigation. And one of the things... Sometimes I hear people in the chat here going, oh, you're not reporting on anything new. Let me tell you something about homicide investigation. The way things get solved is just what we're doing here, sitting around and talking about what we have. What's the evidence? What do you think? What do you think? And what do you think? And Phil calls it spitballing. I call it hypothesizing and theorizing. I talk about uh, getting everyone's input on a case. And that's how cases get solved. So if you don't find this interesting, then uh, it's not probably the place you want to be then, because this is real, the real police, the real police, how they uh, notice, notice I put the accent on the PO, you know, it's the real police and that's how they do things or how we, as in the popo, the popo. Yes. And we talk, we sit around, we talk about things. And I remember sometimes big bosses from patrol would be like, why are the detectives all sitting around? And, you would say to them, well, that's how you solve cases. You have to run things by each other, try different things, call different people, interview different people. And that is the nature of investigation. And nothing in investigation happens quickly. That just happens to be a fact. Phil? Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, at the point that we're at, this case is like six weeks old now. And, you know, revisiting specific things and talking about it, you may spark something in, in your head. You know, that interviewer, that uh, particular guy, something was off and somebody else says, yeah, I noticed when he left, you don't know what's going to come out of that. So I think that we're seeing signs of that. 
based on what was reported in the news in the last couple of days, that perhaps maybe the detectives are revisiting, uh, you know, the crime scene or revisiting, uh, you know, to do canvases, whatever it is. Um, there's so many components to this investigation. There's so many components to this case. And I think that we're going to talk about some of the things that we feel maybe, you know, uh, I don't know if they would be missteps or things that we were hopeful they were going to lead to a perpetrator and an arrest. However, they turned out to be dead ends. But that's exactly, Bill, the point that you make. That's exactly what happens in investigation. You cannot make stuff up. You have to follow the lead. You have to follow the evidence. And eventually you'll wind up with a, a perpetrator in the trick bag. Absolutely. Pauline Buckles, thank you so much for the $10 super chat. Thank you. Very, very much appreciated. Uh, and she's one of our, our big, our big subscribers, our big fans. Thank you so much, Pauline. You know, one of the things that we've been harping on from early on is they've never found out the air, or at least they haven't told anyone the areas of entry and exit on this house. And if they know that they've kept it very, very close to the best because we don't know that. The investigators from uh, YouTube, the talking heads, the media, no one knows specifically. People, there's a lot of conjecture on how the perpetrator got in and where he got in and where he left. But what we need is solid physical evidence. And one of the things you always look for, of course, in an area of entry is there are forced entry. And apparently there is no signs of forced entry in this house. So that is concerning, which means to most of us in the investigative industry is that the door may have been open. You know, it was unlocked. Right. The perpetrator simply just let himself in. Now, areas of exit, that's a whole other thing, because now, based on the bloodiness of this crime scene, there should be blood evidence on the exit. And we haven't got any information that... There is. And again, they don't have to tell us that. And they may know that, yet they haven't let anyone else know that. I'm going to play a, a video of this this gentleman. Well, can I make one quick point about exactly? Yeah, uh, just wanted to bring this out. You know, uh, they haven't publicly stated what the uh, entry and exit of the perpetrator was at the location. However, there could have been a plan in place to enter, enter and exit through the same location. But during the struggle, uh, things become heated. There could be a, a, a quick, you know, uh, everything changes. The game plan goes out the window in the haste to get out of there. And perhaps he went in through one location and exited from another. Those are the things that really needed to be figured out at the crime scene. They haven't reported it publicly. I'm okay with that. But I think that those are two good points to bring up uh, entry and exit. And then you follow from there to look for more evidence. The video I'm going to play is from Lauren Crime. And as a retired uh, sergeant, Johnny Law, who's also a, um, a former a Marine. Well, once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine. He was a Marine. That's right. And uh, he's a crime scene reconstructionist. And you may have seen his hand, this hand drawing on other uh, besides on law and crime, Duty Run actually had this gentleman on his show. And I find that his drawing explains a lot of things because you can't really envision what this house looks like. But in his drawing, it's, it's pretty damn evident. So I'm going to play it right now and we'll talk about it. Those, those were located 
and uh, the actual bedroom layouts and the windows where those were laid out and it it matched right on now if you see the house that that's the house in its entirety uh on the first drawing to the left and you see first second and third and what he explained was this was like a two-story house that another floor was added on to or potentially where it says third that whole wing could have been added on so the second floor on the rear, it's actually at ground level. And just keep that in, in mind that the second floor is at ground level in the rear of the house. That's very important. Yeah. So if you look at this image, right, it shows uh, different views of the house, the top view, the front view, the rear view. And then it has, it shows three floors. So briefly, if you can briefly summarize, what should we know about this house when we're looking about it? Uh, let's start there. What should we know about the house? Well, um, it was originally probably a one-story that they built into a two-story house. And right above the, the, the two bedrooms on the bottom, directly above that, uh, there's one bedroom directly above another. And then above another bedroom is just the living room area. So there's pretty much dead space from there all the way to the third floor. Yeah. And I think let's start with the, the real interesting question that everybody has. It's whoever did this. You would imagine that the two surviving victims who are on the ground, look at it right here, wouldn't they be the first victims, right? You go in, imagine the, you know, a possibility is the killer comes in through the door and you would go strike the first two victims on the ground floor, but to have the, the victims on the third and the second floor, what, what do you make of that? Well, we don't know where they entered. Um, we don't know if they entered through the front door or the second story slider that goes into the kitchen that, you know, just from law enforcement reports and video, they're, they're spending a lot of time at the sliding glass door. Looks like- Bill, could you hold it up right there for a second? Um, some other chemicals on there. Just want to make a point. I believe it's highly unlikely that the perpetrator entered from that first floor level, which would be the front of the house. That would be the existing part of the house, not the extension part, which is the second and third floor. I think that that's almost absolute at this point. Bill, what do you think? Yeah, I think that's uh, Johnny Law here is saying that exact thing here is that law enforcement has been spending most of their time on the sliding glass doors in the rear of that house. So that potentially could be the entrance and the exit. So it makes a lot of sense because it gives whoever did this cover because behind the house is, is more of like a wooded area so that he could get away. Uh, and he could have parked his car. And I keep saying he because we we are based on uh, statistical evidence and based on some of the crime scene predicting that this perpetrator is going to be a male. So even though we don't definitively know that the perpetrator came in through that uh, second floor sliding glass uh, door there, it seems that way right now. It does seem that way. And I think that also accounts for the two surviving victims uh, not being alerted by this perpetrator that uh, more than likely he made entrance from the back, from the second or the third floor sliding glass door, probably the second, which is ground level. And like you said, there's cover back there. It's a parking lot. There's trees and different things. So that seems the most likely uh, entrance point for the perpetrator at this period. Absolutely. I, I mean, I'm just, this is a fantastic drawing. Yes. It's a very like simplified drawing, but it's, it really makes you understand what could and probably did happen. Or to see if they can find any kind of evidence of blood or fingerprints, but 
Uh, I don't, I didn't really see them spending a whole lot of time on that front door. So they could have entered up to the backside where there's a tree line. But right now uh, there's no reports on which way they did enter. There's a ladder on the side of the house. People have been talking about, but we don't know if that ladder was there before, if it was used to gain entry somewhere else. It's unknown at this time. It's all speculation. So just to make clear, there could have been a ladder that might have been used or maybe the tree to get to the, the second floor. There's a ladder leaning up against the house on to the right of the front door along the side of the house. There's been a lot of scuttlebutt about that ladder. Who knows where, it, you know, if it was used, if it was been there, if investigators brought it, we don't know. But the, the they've been spending a lot of time on that back slatter glass door. And so um, I think they're paying a lot of attention to that point of entry right there, whether it was secured or not. Let's start with the second floor, okay? So the second floor is of particular interest. We know that two of the victims were found there. Um, what can what should we know about? And again, I'm looking at the sketch: bedroom two A, bedroom two B. There's a living room. There's a bath. Uh, there's stairs, which we'll get to in a second. And then there's this patio ground. Let's talk about the bedrooms. What do we know? Well, we know if you're looking at the sketch in two B that that's probably more than likely uh, Zena's room. That's where she stayed. Where Ethan probably would have been staying with her. On November 13th. 2A, there's a lot of pictures of Dylan up there, but I think reports are that 2A may have been vacant at the time and that Dylan may have been in 1B down the bottom right. Now there's also pictures of Dylan in 1A. So, I mean, Bethany in 1A. So we, we think we're confident Bethany's in 1A, that Dylan's either in 1B or she's in 2A because there's pictures of her in 2A with some of her uh, items of clothing in there. So right now, just speculation. We don't really know exactly. And and regardless, if if she's staying in 2A, she could have been sleeping in 1B on the 12th. She could have been in Bethany's room with her, uh, you know, as girls commonly do. My daughter did it all the time. So it's all it's all speculation at this point. We just know that police said two were found on second, two were found on the third. And we know that Ethan and Zayner were, were a couple, and so obviously they would be together uh, in this room. Uh, what's the layout of 2B? Um, 2B is just, you know, when you enter the door, um, there, there are some pictures of a bed that is directly against the, I don't know, orientation wise. If you go in the door and hook a left, that the bed is laid in that direction, that orientation, go in the door, the bed's kind of laid, uh, in this direction here. Um, and there's just, you know, normal girl stuff that's throughout the room, but other than the bed being laid out with photos on the 13th unknown so the the 2b um do we know if something happened in there the chances somebody would hear it in the upstairs room where again kaylee uh was found and maddie was found or below where the two surviving victims were i mean the room of 2b what's above and what's below to your the best you can understand well above 2b is nothing because the the rooms to the, you know the third rooms are above the second floor uh, because it, it can't it can'ts out right so two B ends here and then there's this canted out kitchen well above that is three A and three B but on the other side of the kitchen is another bedroom which is two A so two A is kind of on a different it, it's kind of an add on if you if if you will there's a step down from two B that goes out to a kitchen. And that's where 2A is. And then directly above the kitchen and 2A are 3A and 3B. So in other words, let's say the killer or killer struck at 2B first, right? It wouldn't be surprising that the other people in the house wouldn't hear it. 
there's nobody right there's nobody above there's nobody above 2b right now if, if dylan's below on 1b then that's happening above her if she's there if she's awake also we have to think she's about awake. that as well right okay right. so let's go to the third floor know. Can you tell us how the second floor and the third floor, where the staircase is and the how quick it would be for somebody to get from, let's say, uh, 2B up to, and again, I'm looking at the sketch here, 3B and 3A? Yeah, so if you can imagine coming out of 2B and button and, and taking a hard right, you'll go down a drop down and straight ahead, the stairs go up. And they just loop around in kind of a, a U-turn. And right when you come up to the top, right on the left is um, is... 3B and to the right is 3A. I mean, it's it's a pretty quick, it's not a big house, so it'd probably take, I don't know, less than 30 seconds to do that. And the rooms 3A and 3B are very easy to get to from back and forth. Very easy. To, there's just a hallway separating them. Do you have any, based on looking at this case, do you have any idea about the order, or it might be so premature, the order of the killings or anything that's a difference to you between 3A, 3B, and 2B? I I think that that was really gives fantastic. you a, a yeah it's a fantastic sketch that really gives you an idea and the question keeps coming up do you have any idea uh about could this have happened without anyone hearing it and I think without him explaining it he explained it you know uh about there was no bedroom above so it could be that the sound was muffled and you know and again, he doesn't know, nor do we know, the order of the killings. Could it have been that it, they started on the third floor? Unlikely, because he, it appears that he entered on the second, second floor. Level. Yeah. But this is so, it really gives you an idea, um, the layout of the location, and how easy it would have been for the perpetrator to enter and exit without being seen. The other question that everyone has is, why didn't he kill the two girls on the first floor? And none of us have a definitive answer to that. But one of my answers is I think that after he killed four people, he was in escape mode. He wanted to get the hell out of there. And potentially the girls on the first floor had their doors locked. And if even with that much of an impediment, right. The killer could have said, all right, I'm getting the hell out of here. In in a haste to escape, he's not going to worry about the other two victims that may not have even been part of this scenario, that uh, uh, they could have been asleep with a television on. And again, uh, the noise is muffled. Uh, you know, with a television on, you could think the noise is coming from the TV if you fall asleep with a television on or a radio. We don't know what the circumstances were exactly. And then we have the other thing that he pointed out, that above the the, the 2B bedroom, which is the bedroom where two of the victims were found, there's nothing above because of the way the, the configuration of the home, it's kind of uh, staggered. So the, uh, the third floor, that is over the back of the house, so to speak. Again, uh, we can account for... Uh, a lot of the things that went on in that house based on uh, the configuration of the house, we don't know exactly. We're doing a lot of surmising here, but now we understand better why those two people on the first floor may not have uh, heard or seen or woke or had any idea of what was going on on the second and third floors. 
it, it really, you and I, Bill, we came to that conclusion early on looking at the exterior of the home, uh, you know, the way it was configured, it was, it was apparent that there was an, uh, an extension on that house. And when you do an extension, sometimes there's extra sheetrock and walling that would uh, be almost like soundproofing. So we were uh, onto that early on, but I think that this uh, particular video that you, you, uh, you just played with the drawings really, really sends it home, makes everyone understand uh, the layout and how uh, two people could have been in the home uh, that were unharmed and, and had no idea that four people were slaughtered just upstairs. Absolutely. You know, I think they also, the police have also interviewed previous tenants of that address. And they had asked that question. If you were on the first floor, could you hear things going on on the second and third floor? And they said no. Right. So either it could be that the house is very well made and somewhat soundproof uh, from the inside, because obviously outside people were hearing a hell of a lot of noise coming from that house and not on this night, but I'm saying when they threw all kinds of parties here and there. So I, I think a lot of people, they just do not want to accept the fact and in the way these uh, students were killed, that it could have happened so quickly and so violently that there was no scream, you know, and no one seems to want to accept that. But that I believe that that is a distinct possibility. Absolutely, Billy. And, you know, I, I think one of the other things that's frustrating is in 2022, when we have a major homicide or most homicides, usually there's a direction early on. And sometimes the perpetrator may take off or they're in search of and they'll name the perpetrator or name a person of interest. That hasn't happened in this case, but this is not that unusual. I mean, I just saw something on the news today. There was an incident that took place on New Year's Day last year where a police officer was shot at. Uh, outside of a precinct. They made the arrest today. I don't know how long they had the person identified, but from New Year's Day to today, it's almost a full year. Uh, and it was a police officer that was shot at while he was in his car. I, I don't I don't think it was an actual police car. I think it was his personal car. But the point being is investigations do take time. And I think that everyone is, you know, in 2022, we're so hyped up with the internet and YouTube and all the different things. And it really is not that long of a period of time. I heard one of the talking heads talking about that. If this case isn't solved by Christmas, it's going to be a cold case. 100% not true. That is just not even you close. Know, you know, Phil, that bothers me when people speak in absolutes. Of course. And you and I know there is no such thing as an absolute in this business. You have to always think of possibilities. And what if this and what if that? When someone says absolute, if there's no, that's that's horseshit. And I don't know where that guy got that from. You know, you should go back to homicide school because that's uh, that is so incorrect. You know, oh, the, if it's not solved by, where'd you get that from? You know, it certainly was no one that teaches homicide or anyone that's done this type of work. That's ridiculous. You know, and believe it or not, that's what the media wants. They want to use that word cold. They so want to use that word cold because, you know, as they say, it sells newspapers, you know, but this case is not going cold anytime soon. It is not. I believe they're going to make an arrest on this. I really, really do. Let's move off that, Phil. And I, what I want to talk about, sure, because this is um, the title of this little episode we're doing is investigative disappointments uh, in this case. Another thing of disappointment is that 
it's 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 really important in homicide investigation and it's to know the motive we don't know that do we no here we are 39 days into this and we don't know the motive of this case that would help to identify would help us to understand more about this case and i'm not criticizing anyone but we do not know the motive comments well, the motive hasn't been publicly disclosed. There may or may not be a motive within the case folder. Again, a lot of times you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to maybe identify a perpetrator and then try and figure out the motive as well. Sometimes a crime scene, you'll walk into a crime scene and, you know, you'll see a person's pockets turned inside out. They don't have any identification of money. Uh, family could tell you jewelry was on them and now the jewelry has gone. So obviously you're going to think a motive of robbery right then and there. Again, it could be a home invasion type thing. We don't think either the, one of those two things, that's not publicly disclosed, but we really doubt that that's going to be the motive in this case. You and I both think that it's going to be something of, uh, you know, some type of a disrespect or some type of a, uh, a slighting of some sort that turned into a homicidal rage. That's what you and I believe. And I think that, uh, you know, it's not that hard to come to that conclusion the motive, obviously, super important, Billy, because, you know, just uh, you can arrest someone and go into court and you could say, we believe the person did it because of A, B and C. But the jury will always want to hear what was the reason that that person did that, you know. So motive is going to be very important. That's a good point, Billy. So down the road, we hope that we will find out the motive and hopefully that will help us. Right now, there's been a lot of criticism about crime scene integrity. And what crime scene integrity is, is keeping the crime scene pristine. And it seems like many, um, many laws or many rules in regards to crime scene, crime scenes have been broken in this case. Um, shutting the crime scene down and giving back personal effects to the family. And many of you guys out there that are not in the police business, you may see that as, oh, that's a good thing because that's like, you know, keeping the family uh, sort of pacified and uh, and we understand the family needs to be kept up to date and everything. But we think that sort of compromised the crime scene a little bit by uh, by doing that. And most experts that that watch that, uh, they also agreed that that was not uh, within crime scene guidelines to do that. The other thing is right now, is the crime scene open? Or is it closed? Is the crime scene still an active crime scene? Because it seems that people, investigators are going in there without the proper PPE, personal protection equipment, which would include a Tyvek suit, booties, and stuff to protect their clothing, as well as protect the crime scene from them. Don't forget, when you go into a crime scene, you bring something from the outside. And when you leave, you take something with you. So they're not in proper attire. So is the crime scene closed or are they just going back into the crime scene to feel what was going on? And that's very important as an investigator. Every investigator that ever invents, uh, investigates a murder should go through the crime scene, should feel the crime scene, should understand where things are, should understand what the killer or the, the was, was looking at. If it's a gunshot, he should look at the blood spatter or where the bullet hit a wall or whatever. In this case, this crime scene is 
very complex. Four separate murders with a knife. So there's a lot to see there. And I'm sure that they didn't clean up the crime scene. But is the crime scene being preserved or is it not being preserved? Because it's people are walking in there. And uh, I think it concerns everyone that's watching because it's on national news. And people watch and they see two what appears to be detectives, maybe FBI agents, walk in that they don't seem to sign a crime scene log, which is also procedure to sign a log so we can uh, we can determine who was in and out of that crime scene in case we have to do elimination fingerprints or elimination DNA. And if also down the road, when we do arrest somebody, a defense attorney is going to say, how do you know those two guys didn't bring this, that evidence in there with them? How do you know these two guys didn't? Because the crime scene is not being protected. And there are other there are people watching it. With that said, I want to play Joseph Scott Morgan, who was on um, News Nation. He's Bill, actually- let me make a quick point about the crime scene. It's obvious to me that the crime scene is not being kept pristine. They gave items back to family members. Um, not recommended, in my opinion. I think if uh, if it was a New York homicide or with uh, Brooklyn, I'll say Brooklyn District Attorney's Office, would probably want to keep it intact and, and uh, pristine. For the purpose that you just brought up, Billy, if a defense attorney uh, wants to challenge something in court, he can turn around and say, well, Your Honor, uh, and the jury, uh, you know, the, the evidence that was found at this location, we can't go back and uh, review it because the crime scene has already been, you know, disturbed or, or changed. It's not intact anymore. Anymore. So that's one of the things I think was very important. It does sound like to me that they're revisiting the crime scene to get the feel. I can remember, and I'm sure you've done it dozens of times. I've done it dozens of times where you walk through the crime scene with the crime scene investigators and you try to put together, you try to put all the pieces together of what occurred within that crime scene. So that's probably what was done, whether or not uh, they should have uh, released it, I guess is uh judgment call but in my opinion it should have been pristine till now until the trial actually when they was the scumbag might they be going in there to do once it appeared that they had essentially cleared the scene uh, yeah i can only imagine that they're going back to add some kind of context to some other evidence that maybe they're developing outside of the scene that has been taken away at this point and that the lab has begun to uh, to analyze to see if there's anything else that they can kind of glean from what remains at the scene. Remember, they took out these so-called personal belongings that had sentimental value, um, and again, uh, that's that can be troubling. Now they're going back into the scene to take a look at what remains behind there at the scene. Uh, they're walking in with some type of evidence kit. I can't specifically say what that is, but there it looks like one that's. Uh, uh, that's common, commonly used out on scenes for any number of reasons. How much harder is it one, two, three, now four weeks into an investigation trying to track down this killer for investigators, for that community? Does it get harder the further it stretches on? Yeah, time is our biggest enemy in forensics, in any case, in investigations. But what gives me hope is the fact that they're looking specifically for a car. And Marnie, I have to tell you, the car uh, that's that they're looking for will have perhaps specific trace evidence tiebacks to the scene. Remember, they said that they were getting 
some evidence back from the crime lab or some testing had been done, there's a big process of not just identifying individuals, but also eliminating individuals. So if there's unknown DNA that they have at that scene and it can be tied back to a car, perhaps, that could be significant. Let me ask you about something that has been in the headlines and the attorneys for the family have gone on TV and they've shown some frustration with local law enforcement and how they're investigating it. At the end of the day, the families, the attorneys, law enforcement, the communities, other students, us in the media, we're all on the same team, right? We want to track down mm -hmm. this killer. We want to bring them to justice for these families, for these four. I just have to comment on that, that we're all on the same team. Are you kidding me? The media <laughs> is on their own team. They're on no one's team. I mean, that, I almost wanted to laugh when she said that we're all on the same. Oh, really? Is that why you guys put out nonsense? You know, it, it, I, I just I couldn't let that go. I had to, I had to say something. <laughs> or students. Does that complicate investigators' work? Does it deter from the focus of the investigation? Or is it important that the pressure is on and that accountability is, uh, is at the forefront? I think that it's important to have pressure on a situation as long as goodwill is involved, that you don't have bad actors that are jumping to wild conclusions, which are floating about the car, in, for example, that was in Oregon. Um, you know, you know, the social media ran wild over this and it turned out to essentially be nothing at that point in time. There's even a hint that there were people standing around out there that had knowledge of that car and probably what they presumed to be the connectivity to Idaho, just private citizens gawking at it. Well, if that's a vital piece of information, if it's a vital piece of evidence, then they could have put their hands all over it. Was the vehicle secured? Uh, and so I don't see goodwill involved in that. I see self-service involved in that. So we all have to be on the same team, pushing the same direction, I think, and supporting these law enforcement officers and investigators. Yeah. What do you make of this new video that uh, we have obtained of the two students, Kaylee and Maddie, just hours before the crime was committed, walking together, uh, referencing a man named Adam that police say they have talked to, they don't suspect he's involved. Um, how critical of this clue is, is it for a timestamp? Is it for seeing them? Anything stand out to you that would be helpful? Yeah, I think that it would be. Uh, I think that it would be uh, significant in the sense that you have a person's name and any person that might be peripherally uh, related to that individual that might have knowledge. Again, here they go again. They're saying that he's not involved. I don't necessarily know that that's helpful uh, in this particular case. They have an individual identified, so they need to pursue all of those leads. Now, I mean, my question is, are they going to go out and people begin in, in the public badgering this Adam person now? And it's, you know, it shuts down a lot of lanes when this occurs and it, it can be a problem. And I think it's been a problem up to this point in this case. What do you think about the killer or killers? Because we really don't know how closely they're paying attention to the investigation, to media reports, um, based on big cases that you have covered and looked at before. What's the MO? Do they distance themselves or do they stay in plain sight thinking that uh, no one will notice? That's an excellent question. I think part of that rest in the idea that they don't necessarily have to stay close. What they're looking to do, I would think, uh, is stay tuned. 
they can essentially follow everything that occurs in this trial, uh, or forgive me, in this case, um, you know, step by step, measure by measure. They might be on social media. They're watching everything that that's going on out there. And they have information that is coming into them. And one of the keys in any kind of investigation is that if you have a suspect, you, the, the less information they have at their disposal is better for the investigation. Yeah, as I said. I think that guy's excellent. Wow, is he yes. excellent. Very you know, good. A professor of criminal justice, PhD, a crime scene expert. Just, you know, we could spend shows you know, um, going over some of the YouTube content creators that cross the line, that doing the what ifs and doing sensationalism. I don't think that's helpful to this case. You know, uh, when say the what ifs and we do it too. We do what ifs, but I don't think we're throwing out sensational stuff out there. And you heard him talk about people, uh, were putting their hands on the car or, the, you know, gawking at this car, the name Adam, all of a sudden now they're afraid that that guy's going to be uh, stalked by YouTube content creators that are going to throw his name out there and says, he's the guy, you know, like they did with the food truck guy, like they did with the neighbor who walked was walking, uh, he went on TV a couple of times and said, uh, was talking about the house and the students. And stuff. People were saying, oh, he's, he's the guy too. And, it really can destroy someone's life. You know, Billy, uh, you talk about the media being on the same team. When they showed the video of Hoodie Guy, they showed a very maybe 15, 20 second clip that it did look suspicious. And everybody was putting their money. This is weeks back. They were putting their money on. He's the guy that did it. Uh, and as it turned out, if you watched the full context of that video, uh, you you saw that uh when uh, Jennifer Coffinduffer was on the other night, she talked about it, that if you look at the full context of the video, he was engaging people and it turns out he was walking with them and was very friendly and it wasn't stalkerish. And it turns out that he's been eliminated as a suspect, supposedly. Uh, well, you know, when we say eliminated, they could always go back and, uh, and look at him and he could be the suspect. But as of now, they feel that he's not involved. So there was a lot of hype and there was a lot of attention brought to that guy. And again, you, you talked about the other guy. Now, Adam was mentioned, the bartender, Adam. I'm sure a lot of people, oh, maybe it's Adam. You know, what 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 was he told that, uh, you know, maybe he went into a rage by what he was told. And again, a lot of these things happen. They manifest within stuff that's reported in the media. And if you look at it in full context, and I'm sure that the investigators are doing that, they're, they're saying, well, no, that, you know, hoodie guy's not involved, Adam's not involved, and so on and so forth. But it appears to me that they're very tight-lipped about this for good reason. They may have a good direction that they're going in, and they just have to keep everything very close to the vest. I hope that they do have a direction. I'm not convinced they do, but I really do hope and pray that they do. Folks, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. If you like real crime from a police perspective, then you're in the right place. Uh, and if you're not subscribed to us, go on our YouTube. It's free to subscribe. Hit that subscribe button. Give us a thumbs up and, and ring that bell. And if you want to contribute to our show, we have a Patreon with three different levels. And we also have a YouTube channel membership with count them five different levels. And you see the folks in the chat with the green font. They're part of our YouTube family. You know, one of the things that was made very clear by the um, Moscow chief Fry was that I think they're getting a lot of uh, 
pushback on, on who's running this investigation. And he wanted to make it very clear that the Moscow police is running the investigation. And right from the beginning, we asked for help from the FBI and from the Idaho State Police. So we have enough personnel. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him say it. Let me put him on the screen and see what he has to say. People that know is this is a Moscow Police Department investigation. Moscow's police chief taking full ownership of a case with few clues and no named suspects so far. Uh, my command team oversees this. We have 94 years of experience um, between us, and we're going to continue to work this case. Vowing not to give up after the lawyer for one of the victim's families criticized law enforcement on today. I'm not sure they're they are. Um, capable of handling a quadruple murder um, and and maybe they should be getting more help in maybe there should be some different lead investigators on the case police also say they know about a surveillance video that appears to be from the night of the murders Police say they've identified the Adam named in the video and that he's cooperating with detectives. Investigators have been searching for information about a white Hyundai Elantra that they say was close to the scene of the murders of the four college students last month. Hopes lifted yesterday when police took a closer look at one car matching the description that crashed in Eugene, Oregon, some 500 miles from Moscow. But they later said the owner is not believed to be related to the murders. Also this morning, some more background emerging. An apparent police body cam video posted to social media by a News Nation correspondent purportedly showing Moscow police called to the same house for a noise complaint months earlier on September 1st. Police later making contact with a woman who identifies herself as Maddie Mogan, who confirmed she lives there. None of the, the occupants that live at this address are here right now. So now you have a house full of random people. NBC News has not verified the video. A community still hoping they're one step closer to the truth. And NBC News has reached out to Moscow police for comment on what appears to be that September body cam footage, but we have not heard back. Craig? I mean, Steve, here's the thing. You know, a lot of these families are going to be spending their first Christmas without their loved ones. Any word, have they said how they're going to be getting through this? You know, it's going to be very difficult. I hate when media does that. We don't need that question answered. We know they're going to be suffering. That's what's going to be happening, you know. Well, it's just a stupid question, you know. It's so really? TV. It's so TV, though, you know. It's so yeah, talk, TV. talk about dramatizing. I mean, come on. I think yeah. you you don't need a, a you know direction on what these people are feeling. I mean, come on. But no, I think we all know. Selena Balfrey, thank you for the two seventy nine super chat. The CA, I believe you're from Canada. Welcome, welcome uh, aboard, and thank you for coming. Thank you for watching. Charisma, thank you for the two dollar uh, super chat. I think that you might also be from Canada. Again, welcome all these uh, Canadians. Canada. Uh, Bringing that cold weather down from the north. Hey, <laughs> bringing the cold weather, eh? <laughs> we don't mind you bringing the cold weather. Leave Trudeau up there, though. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, so, folks, the you see, I mean, this there's a tug of war going on here, Billy. I mean, based on that 
chief saying that the FBI, listen, they're the big brother in this thing and they're helping little brother. And even though the jurisdiction is going to fall on the Moscow police, I think there's no question about that. It's a Moscow. It's going to be the state, you know, Idaho state and, and it's going to fall on their jurisdiction. But I think there's definitely a, a little bit of a tug of war going on, but that's egos, you know? Absolutely. Lieutenant Pete, Lieutenant thank Pete. you so much for $50 super chat. Merry Christmas and happy man. new year, Bill and Phil. All the best, love Pete and Richella. Two of the our best. biggest fans from the very, very beginning has Absolutely. been Pete and Richella Pranzo. And Lieutenant Pete, if you guys don't know his history, he's an NYPD legend. He has a book out called The Harlem Raiders. He's the real deal. He worked in the 3-2 when the 3-2 was like downtown Baghdad. And uh, he he's the real deal, Lieutenant Pete Pranzo. Much respect for Lieutenant Pete. Absolutely. Fuzzy Doxy. Thank you so much for the 999 super chat. And everyone, of course, we, we wish you everyone here a, uh, a wonderful Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, whatever you celebrate, Kwanzaa, you know, Feliz Navidad, all of those things. I sang that today. <laughs> I don't wanna I wanna do it on the, the night show too, but uh this is a great time of year to be with family and friends and just realize there's people out there, specifically in this case, that are gonna be suffering through these holidays. Donnie Lynn. Thank you so much for the $5 uh, super sticker. Much, much appreciated. Um, it's th This case is is baffling. And it's, it's look, any police department, you could have the best homicide squad on this earth and would struggle with this case. Would, would uh, it wouldn't be, a, let me put it this way, it wouldn't be a slam dunk. It would be a very difficult case no matter what homicide squad caught this case. And... I know that the Moscow Police Department, uh, they have help, but this is not an easy case. And this is not the type of crime that they get all the time uh, in Moscow, Idaho. You know, their last homicide was seven years ago. So that exacerbates the thing. But thank God they do have help, the FBI, and they have the Idaho State Police. Phil, another thing I wanted to bring up, um, since we're talking about evidence and about uh, investigated disappointments. A big disappointment is that the murder weapon has never been recovered. And that happens to be a huge thing. In any homicide investigation, not recovering the murder weapon is a huge thing. Could The murder weapon could potentially identify the perpetrator through fingerprints, blood, all of that stuff. But we don't have it. How bothered are you in regards to that? Well, obviously, uh, in any murder investigation, you always want the weapon because, like you just said, uh, there could be evidence on the weapon that would tie to the perpetrator as well as the victims. If there's blood stain or some type of DNA on the knife, it would definitely tie to the scene. Now, we're not going to, it doesn't seem like we're going to have that. However, all is not lost. We don't know that that knife may not be recovered somewhere down the line, but uh, it doesn't look very good at this point. Uh, I think you could still get a conviction on a, a very good evidentiary case from all of the uh, evidence that was recovered at the crime scene. Uh, having the weapon would be like the bow on the gift, uh, so to speak, uh, and it would just uh, make it a nice, neat package. But it's not the end of the day that it's not been recovered. Uh, again, let's just hope and pray that some of that 103 pieces of evidence that was uh, uh, cataloged by crime scene has some uh, very strong evidence that's going to tie the perpetrator to the crime. 
Curious Dreamer from the United Kingdom. Thank you for the 10 pounds. 10 pounds, I guess it is. That's your denomination. Uh, su uh, super chat, super sticker. Thank you so much. Very much appreciated. Um, yeah, guys, the, the no murder weapon, that was really, um, many folks are still dwelling on that, but that is potentially extremely, extremely, not potentially, it is extremely important. And um, right now we could just have a pathologist predicting what type of knife, you know, we had a million talking heads saying that this is a K-bar knife. No one knows that for sure. You know, it left wounds that were consistent with a knife of that type. But once someone says one thing, it takes on a life of its own and it becomes it becomes the information. It becomes the evidence, even though it's not evidence. It's the pathologist may say based on the, the size of these wounds, it was a 12 or 13 inch knife. It, it was a double sided blade or it was a one sided blade. Um Pathologist has never come out and said that, nor has the coroner. The coroner here has spoken to the family members, uh, not on record. So we get that second and third hand. So we can't predict. Um, again, we can tell by the wounds what type of knife this was, but not definitively. Phil? Yeah, it's not going to be a, an absolute. It's going to, what I think the uh, media you know, they're, they're running with it, but I think the, uh, the medical examiner said it was a K bar type knife. I think that would be determined by the size of the punctures. And then, uh, there's some type of like a guard on a K by knife, K bar knife, and you could have bruising if the knife goes all the way in of the skin. So again, uh, they would, you know, a pathologist or a coroner would be familiar with, uh, weapons, uh, with that type of uh, knife wound. So they'd be able to tell you not exactly what it is, but that type. They would say uh, a K-bar type weapon, we believe, is the, is the knife. And again, the, the depth of the incisions is all the different measurements, all the different things. They photograph the injuries to the victim's bodies, and they can come up with that type of a, uh, uh, you know, a description of the weapon. On um, News Nation last night on Chris Cuomo's show. We had uh, Jennifer Koffendoffer, retired FBI agent. We just had her on the Very show good. a couple of nights ago. She's great. And we have retired NYPD Sergeant Joe Jackalone. And they're talking about the very things that we're discussing right now. So let me play a little bit of this here. Like that mean to you? Well, he wants to make it very clear that they have prosecutorial jurisdiction, that this is their case, it happened in their town. But make no mistake, they are partnered very closely right now with the state police, and there are 60 FBI agents on this case. And I assure you, the analytical group and the support group within the FBI that has lent themselves to this case is not being run by that chief, but rather being run by people in the FBI. Now, Jennifer, on this point of, you know, advocating for the job and how it's being done, uh, I have used the Gonsalves, uh, Kaylee Gonsalves is one of the victims, obviously. Her family hired a lawyer. I've had him on a couple of times to talk about it. Uh, you say it's a dicey proposition when victims' families have an attorney and they're weighing in the way uh, this counselor is. Why? Uh, because it's taking away from the case the time that law enforcement is spending uh, answering requests of this attorney, uh, having meetings with this attorney, and so on and so forth, is only taking away from manpower that could be otherwise used to solve this crime.
Right. Now, uh, look, I, I hear you about that, but I also see their side of it. They're desperate. Um, you know, they, they, they get misgivings. They're not getting communicated with. I understand uh, why you're going to start to feel aggressive about that. Now, Joe, there are a lot of people who are aggressive in this situation. We have this emerging um, true crime investigator digital reality where people are looking at this stuff 24-7. And in some cases, they've scrubbed up some media information that, you know, they've added to the understanding of the context of what happened that night. But you believe it's a slippery slope, that sometimes help can be too much help. Yeah, just look at the sheer number of tips they got, 10,000 tips on this case. And the question comes down to how much of value do they have? And for the police part of it, they have to answer out every one of those tips that come out. We'll vet them out. If, if it means something, then they need to go and do that. That's why I think we saw even more FBI agents were added to the list. So it's always better to have more added than subtracted because that would have been a bad sign. But the problem that you're dealing with is the sheer amount of information and how much of it is really going to amount to anything. And that is something that, the, you know, this is a day of reckoning, I think, this case, too, about how much pressure that we've seen put onto this police department and uh, and the state and the FBI in regards to it. And it, it is it is immense. Hey, thank you for watching. I think, uh, you know, Joe Jackalone uh, made a good point there that, uh, you know, sometimes uh, too, too much information isn't good. You know, it, it's uh, it's not you don't need all of that information. And what do you do with it? Every single tip. Someone has to be interviewed. And it has to be checked out. So do you have a whole team that is just doing tips? Uh, and how many detectives do you need to do that? Um, he mentioned all the digital um, the, the digital folks that are out there. Uh, that, you know, what they're referring to, of course, is, is the Internet people, the YouTube content creators. And on some cases, look, we freely admit Gabby Petito. Without Red, White, and Bethune, they may have never found Gabby Petito's body. So they were a content creator on YouTube that truly did help the investigation. And there are other cases that content creators on YouTube do help the investigations, but many do a lot of damage. You know, many cause extreme amounts of work for detectives and them having to check out things that uh, seemingly may not be important. Phil? Listen, there's a lot of people that might have some good input based on their YouTube, uh, you know, content creation. Maybe they have law enforcement background or attorneys or different things like that, or they're familiar with this type of stuff. But then, listen, I don't want to knock subscribers or people that comment or people are in the chat, but I've saw some ridiculous uh, comments and talking about an absolutes. Well, this happened and that happened. They have it all figured out. So a person like that calls the tip line and says, well, I believe this and go look at this. Now, again, Jack alone made the point. There's 10,000 tips and the investigators have to go through all of those tips and they have to answer them out and say, you know, this tip uh, was bogus. It, it didn't lead to anything or, uh, you know, maybe it, it could lead to something. But the bottom line is, is that, yeah, in the world we live in today, there's a lot of uh, different people adding into this uh, case, uh, throwing out tips. And like you said, Billy, sometimes it's uh, counterproductive for the investigation. Phil, you Bill Murray, attorney at law, have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? 
Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. We here at Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories love Joe Murray. We think he's an excellent trial attorney and a great human being. Joe Murray is probably one of our biggest uh, supporters to this show. He supported us from the very beginning. He actually was in a TV show with us, too, called yes. The Perfect Murder many years ago, which keeps popping up every once in a while. Someone always contacts me and says, oh, I saw you on TV last night. Yeah, I'm yes. like, oh. Our episode. Uh, yeah. If night. people know what we were paid for that, they'd cringe. <laughs> it was a great oh, experience. Oh, it was. Oh, it was. But they'd be like, do you get residuals from that? Yeah, yeah, I get residuals. I get yeah, shaking hand res residuals from that. You get people but, saying, oh, I saw you on TV. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's the reward I get. You know, and it, I, was I told, it was good. I told I wouldn't, them. We wouldn't have police off the cuff. I wouldn't met you if it wasn't that, for that that's show. true that's true you know i told phil the other night that when i was flying back from westchester i was in the westchester airport and i was sat down and this uniform cop comes to comes up to me and he says are you bill cannon and he goes it's shake my he goes i listened to your podcast i was like i was over the moon as they say in ireland and great britain you know of, uh, that someone recognized me you know it's pretty pretty cool it's a great feeling yes it definitely yeah. is you know, I want to go mention one other thing because we're almost up to the hour. And one of the things when we said investigative disappointments and is that there is no eyewitnesses and there are no ear, ear witnesses to this case. Could that change? And when we talk about shaking the tree and getting out into the community and interviewing people, that's what we mean. Someone could come forward that knows something, even that if the killer starts running his mouth and talking about something like this, that's why it's important to keep the pressure on, keep the police presence out there, keep shaking that tree. That's what we believed on the NYPD. It works. That's why we spoke about handing out flyers, putting out a reward for uh, information on this case. It works. I've seen it work. And again, I'll use that old NYPD expression, shake that tree. Get a witness. There's a witness out there. There's someone out there that knows something. The old adage from after 9-11 and for the NYPD, if you see something, say something. And someone out there knows something. Phil? I agree, Billy. And I think that we don't know uh, why they didn't put out a reward right away. I thought that was, uh, you know, when, when you start to go a few days into an investigation and you see that it's not really, you don't have a real direction, I would think a reward would have been uh, something that they should have done. I called for the families to get together and put up a reward. You know, if all the families got together, that would keep them proactively involved in the case. Maybe uh, they'd be a little less frustrated. Handing out flyers, we talked about that right early on, uh, to go back to the location in and around where the murder took place, uh, maybe the same time a week later, hand out flyers uh, if anyone saw anything. Sometimes that'll jog a person's memory and say, hey, you know, I did see something that looked a little out of place. Uh, all of those things, I mean, it's still not too late. Uh, things like that still could be done. And, uh, you know, uh, maybe there is specific evidence that we don't know about within the case folder. I don't think there would be an eyewitness. If there was an eyewitness, they probably would have put out some type of a description that we're looking for. 
whatever the subject would be that person would be describing. So I think you're right about that, Billy. Doesn't appear to be any eyewitnesses to a person entering or leaving the location. However, it could be, you don't know. We don't have access to the case folder, but it does seem that that is the case. So um, I'm just keeping my fingers crossed that sooner rather than later, there's going to be a major break in this case. And uh, the family can get, listen, they're never going to get closure. They're not going to get their children back, but they will be able to get some type of relief that the person responsible has been arrested. And then we're going to move forward with the uh, with the charges and the prosecution. Absolutely. I just want to play a little snippet and then we'll probably end. And I just want everyone to know that Duty Ron is following us at eight o'clock. Uh, don't all run out of my show right now, but you could you could wait a few minutes. And he has Barbara Butcher on and Ed Wallace, and they're going to talk about the evidence, the and why the ME hasn't uh, gotten back with a lot of the um, forensic evidence at the scene. But there's no two better people in the world, probably, uh, in regards to this type of evidence than Barbara Butcher and Ed Wallace. Agree. Uh, so. Follow uh, Duty Ron's show tonight, and uh, let me just play this. This is a complex case. Despite the public's impression, Moscow Police Chief James Fry says there is, in fact, movement in the case. He just can't talk about it. Is there anything new in the investigation? What I can tell you is, is this case is not going cold. Um, we're still receiving um, hundreds of tips daily. We are following up on those tips. We're still building that picture. Police say one of those pieces is a white Hyundai Elantra in the area at the time of the murders. Investigators asked the public for help, who responded with thousands of tips. But hope worked yesterday when police looked at a car matching the description and found it was unrelated. Another thread unraveled, the public desperate for any information. I know that's very frustrating. It's frustrating to um, family members and the community, but our end goal is to bring somebody to justice. That frustration in part leading to a surge of internet sluice, online communities trying to crack the case themselves. Police say it's led to misinformation. They've had to spend resources dispelling. How much does that interfere with your investigation? I think rumors always hurt us um, in an investigation, but it's our job to go back and utilize our resources and to continue to um, bet those. But 10,000 tips later, no arrest. Only hope from a community haunted by a killer still on the loose and a pledge from their police chief. We are committed to this case. We're committed to solving this case. Steve Patterson, NBC News. So, folks, that's our show for tonight, Phil. I'm going to give you final words and then... Uh... Folks are running out of here going on going to do the run show. Final words, a couple of quick things. Number one, keep the faith. I have full faith that this case is going to lead to a successful conclusion. I know me personally, I'm going to keep these families in my prayers. This is a terrible time for the families to have to go through the holiday season with the loss of their children. Um, I also want to say thank you to all the subscribers, all the fans, all the people out there that support us. Without you guys, there'd be no police off the cuff, real crime stories. Thank you to Duty Ron, to Josh, to Joe Murray, to Richella and Pete Pranzo. Happy holidays to all of those people. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, Hanukkah, whatever it is that you celebrate. God bless. Stay safe out there, guys. We love everybody and keep supporting us. Very much appreciated. And all of Very our mods, cool. specifically Dawn Marie and Angie Yang, thank you so oh, much. Yes. Keeping the, the chat safe for democracy. <laughs>
I like everyone, that, Bill. That's good. Everyone have a great night. Stay safe, everyone. Good night. One episode, just ain't enough.